You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on the 30th day of April, 2012. And once again, I'd like to remind listeners to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, for previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself over the past five years. And yes, of course, as you will have noticed, once again, this is a Monday edition of the podcast, as the podcast has switched to a Monday delivery. So once again, thank you for tuning in for this week's edition of the podcast, and I would once again wholeheartedly exhort those who have not yet done so to subscribe to the podcast feeds at corbettreport.com slash subscribe so that you can get all of the latest editions of the podcast delivered directly to your iTunes or pod reader of choice as soon as they become available. And of course, that is absolutely free. I would also like to remind listeners out there that this media is brought to you by you and I can't do it without your support. So once again, thank you so much to all of the people who have ordered a DVD and or signed up for the subscriber only newsletter, which is available for a minimum 100 Japanese yen per month donation, which is about $1.40 a month, and is now coming out on a weekly basis and includes my editorial for the International Forecaster, quite a detailed report each week on a given subject. This week's report on the rise of the BRICS, the idea of the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, some sort of concrete unit of economic uh, power on the global geopolitical chessboard. And uh, it includes, as always, copious documentation so that you can go and further research that subject for yourself. Every week, coming out with the International Forecaster, the editorial written by yours truly, James Corbett, and delivered to my subscriber newsletter, uh, my newsletter subscribers, I should say, every single week as well. And next week will be the first one of the month. That means subscriber-only video and other goodies in there. Once again, as my gesture of support and gratitude to all of those out there who are making this free media commercial free and free freely available to the public available for all of you out there. And on that note, lots of information to get through as always. So let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome to episode 228 of the Corbett Report, how to become a billionaire and what to do with it. Contrary to the old adage repopularized in recent years by fast food industry advertising that it's good to be king, if the obsequious, boot-licking, genuflecting, toadying towards power of the following speakers is anything to go by, it's better to be a billionaire. I think if there's one person on the planet who truly needs no introduction, uh, it's Bill Gates. Our next speaker truly needs no introduction. He's a man of great humility and impact, and we can honestly say the world would not be what it is today without him. Uh, two years ago, Bill left Microsoft to focus his obviously very considerable energy, efforts, and entrepreneurial spirit on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, of which he is the co-chair, and which is the largest transparently operated private foundation in the world. If in the 22nd century a book will be written about the entrepreneur of the 21st century, I'm sure, or even of the 20th century, I'm sure that the person who will foremost come to the mind of those historians is certainly Bill Gates. Oh yes, you can feel the dark power radiating from this one. We must bow ourselves before him, supplicate ourselves to him, and make sure that we lick his boots clean. And maybe, maybe we will get some scraps from his table. Uh, yes, well, if that appeals to you, let's figure out how to become a multi-billionaire, the Forbes quote-unquote richest man in the world, and someone with enough power to make anyone who you dare meet grovel before you. So what kind of superhero-like qualities must adhere to a person who wants to become this type of multi-billionaire commander of industries? Is it visionary foresight of the future?
Hmm, well, maybe not. Well, then it must be the ability to create a product the likes of which the world has never seen, one renowned the world over for its utility, ease of use, and reliability. How about that Bill Gates? Uh, here's a guy, if you got a computer, you know who Bill Gates is. And uh, he's, he's like a, a billionaire a billion times over, and he, uh, he invented the Microsoft uh, thing. And as a result, he's, uh, he's uh, terribly wealthy, and in two years, he's going to retire. He's going to step down from his daily routines at Microsoft. And now, uh, in honor of all he's done for the computer industry, uh, Microsoft is releasing this celebratory announcement. In 1975, Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard to start his own software company. Little did he know that Microsoft would become one of the world's most powerful corporations, generating annual revenue of 40 billion. Oh, crap. Hold on. I can fix this. Son of a bitch. So long, Bill. From all your pals at Microsoft. That's exactly right. Hmm, okay, not that either. Ah, I understand. It has to be an incredible organizational efficiency manifested in a meticulous attention to every detail and reflected in all aspects of one's daily life. Bill Gates can be so focused that the small things in life get overlooked. If he was busy, he didn't bathe, he didn't change clothes. We were in New York, and the demo that we had crashed the evening before the uh, announcement, and Bill worked all night with some other engineers to fix it. Well, it didn't occur to him to take 10 minutes for a shower after that. just didn't occur to him that that was important, and he badly needed a shower that day. <laughs> no, no, that's not it. Hmm, I don't know. Is it in any way related to being a loyal member of a proudly eugenicist family who promises to keep those family traditions alive and perpetuate them into the future with one's untold wealth? Mr. Gates needs no introduction. Nonetheless, I'm going to give him a brief introduction. Um, Mr. Gates was born in Bremerton, Washington, um, and is the third in his family to have the same name, his grandfather being the first, William Henry Gates. He was an active member of a Boy Scout troop for several years and earned the Eagle Scout Award in 1941. After high school, he enlisted in the United States Army, changing his name to William Gates Jr. to avoid the appearance of elitism. This according to your Wikipedia biography. Also true. <laughs> but did you come to reproductive issues as an intellectual, philosophical pursuit, or was there something that happened? Did you, did, did you come up on, was there a revelation? When I was growing up, my parents were always involved in various uh, uh, volunteer things. My dad was uh, head of Planned Parenthood, and it was very controversial uh, to be involved with that. And so it's fascinating that at the dinner table, my parents were very good at sharing the things that they were doing and almost treating us like adults talking about that. Bill paused long enough to make some lasting friendships at Harvard but his social life was not a priority. He dated only occasionally, with varying degrees of success. I interviewed several women who had dated Bill just briefly, and one told me the very, very first question Bill asked her was, what did you score on your SAT test? You know, this is not exactly, you know, what a, what a, what a young woman wants to hear. Um, for Bill Gates, though, he had scored a perfect 800 on his, on his math portion of the SAT, and, and this was a matter of pride with him, and he wanted to make sure whoever he was dating, you know, had scored a pretty high, pretty high grade. Ah, uh, yes, it's clearly that. So, for those of you out there who aren't in well-connected, elitist, eugenicist-driven families, well, you need not apply for the billionaire position. I think that slot is already uh, taken. But, uh, but once again, don't take my word for it. You can look into the family history for yourself and, uh, and all of the wonderful philanthropy that the Gates family has been involved in since Bill was even a little boy with uh, his father being on the board of eugenicist-driven Planned Parenthood and, and all of the elitist connections of his family. And, oh yes, William Henry Gates III, uh, inappropriately named, because if you do the math, in fact, he was the fourth uh, member in that family to, to bear that name, not the third, but he goes by the third. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. A very not uh, not exactly the humble origins of some of the pull themselves up by the bootstraps uh, types of stories we hear about certain investors and others who manage to make millions upon millions. Well, here's a multi multi billionaire from a very well connected, very insider elitist eugenicist driven family that used to have dinner table conversations about population reduction. And oh, lo and behold, now he's involved in that very scheme with his foundation, his eponymous foundation, which is spreading goodness and sunshine and rainbows and lollipops to all those poor little brown folks that he's been so obsessed with getting rid of for the last several decades. Well, more on that later, but since uh, at least this title of the uh, today's podcast episode indicates that we're going to be talking about how to become a billionaire, perhaps we should devote a little bit more attention to the story of Bill Gates's rise to economic power. Uh, it's certainly interesting in and of itself and involves some, well, highly unlikely parts of a very unusual story that uh, that probably does deserve greater scrutiny. Although I will have to once again ask for the help of listeners out there who may have better sources and better information about this to come forward and help provide that either to me uh, via the website or, of course, you can phone in on Corbett Report Radio and we can talk about it on air. But, uh, but at any rate, I'm sure that most of the computer-oriented tech nerds out in the audience will probably already know the story of how Microsoft came to power with their MS-DOS, which was really the uh, the beginnings of the, the Microsoft fortune and what really cemented their place in the industry. But for those who don't know it, here is a dramatization of it provided in the 1999 made-for-TV docudrama Pirates of Silicon Valley. We think we have what you need. That's a start. Now, we know that IBM has set up this place to compete head-on with Apple. And that you're gearing up to come out with a personal computer that will wipe them out. So we can get you an operating system. What kind of operating system? It's called DOS. This is amazing. Not just amazing, it's historic. It should be taught in all the history books. I mean, hung and framed in the National Gallery or something. Because this is the instant of creation of one of the greatest fortunes in the history of the world. I mean, Bill Gates is the richest guy in the world because of what started in this room. <laughs> you want to know what else? It wasn't exactly smoke and mirrors. But we didn't have anything. I mean, not a damn thing. Here we were, this two-bit little outfit telling IBM we had the answer to their problems. The DOS, the disk operating system, to make all those zillion IBM computers compute. We didn't even remotely own anything like what Bill was selling them. Nada. Zip. Of course, we don't just want to sell it to you outright. We want to be able to license it to you. You want to retain ownership? Right. Well, the profits are in the computers themselves, not this software stuff. Hmm. No big deal. Oh, and one other thing. We have to be able to sell it to other outfits. But there was just one little problem. <laughs> Bill. Why did you tell them we have an operating system? We have a thing to sell them now, you know, we're dead. We're not dead, you're gonna give us that miracle, right, Paul? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Come on, you said you knew a guy who we could buy an operating system from. I said I sorta of know. Sort of, you heard me, don't tell me sort of, I just told IBM. Sort of. So basically you're saying you wanna buy my operating system? Yeah. Why? Uh. You know, I don't know. We just think we might be able to, uh, you know, mess with it and resell it. Who to? We have a few customers, you know, we're sort of talking to. Some of them don't really want to know what we're doing with them. So they made us sign a secrecy agreement. And you're offering us? $50,000. Dollars? Dollars. 
Well, that is the officially sanctioned and Microsoft seal of approved version of the history at any rate, and one that you'll find in any decent history textbook on the subject, talking about how the young, pippily-faced, almost teenager Bill Gates managed to finagle his way into the offices of one of the largest corporations on Earth and sell them a license to software that he didn't even have at the time, which he then went out and bought from Seattle Computer Products for $50,000 and rebranded as his own and also managed to finagle just incredible terms out of IBM that went completely against all of their standard business uh, practices and assured Microsoft an 80 to 90% share of the operating system market and the billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that that guaranteed in the long run. And yes, that is a highly improbable story for all sorts of reasons, and it does certainly lead more suspicious minds to wonder if there's something more to this story and more connections behind the scenes that you and I are not allowed to know about. And uh, at this point, it does remain very much in the realm of speculation for me. Certainly, the idea has been floated by various people out there that I, Microsoft is, in fact, an IBM front company that was basically chosen to be the uh, quote-unquote external company that would avoid the antitrust lawsuits that IBM would inevitably have faced if they had cornered the operating system market for themselves. Well, by seeming to have this autonomous company, this Microsoft being that uh, front for them, they could then deflect those criticisms. I have seen absolutely nothing in the way of documentation to actually back up this claim. So if anyone out there has any scrap of information that might shed more light on that type of a setup, I would, of course, be very interested in hearing it. But there certainly does seem to be at least a little bit more to this Microsoft-IBM connection than is generally uh, brought about in the corporate media and in the officially sanctioned Microsoft seal of approved version of this history. And it's one that connects the well-connected Gates family to the IBM uh, insiders and the eugenicist elite at the IBM uh, branch of this global enslavement grid. And for people who don't know about eugenics and IBM's connections to it, I would highly suggest you look into that. But certainly there does seem to be a Gates-IBM connection behind the scenes that isn't really dwelt on in a lot of the official stories of Microsoft. Bill's highly respected and well-connected mother would come to play a pivotal role in his early career. Mary served on a number of corporate boards as well as the University of Washington. She was on the National Board of United Way, also on the National Board of United Way, was the CEO of IBM, which is how her son met the CEO of IBM, through her. Just an interesting little tidbit of the story that often tends to get left out. And once again, for those who don't know about the very real IBM connections to Hitler and the Nazis, I would, of course, suggest IBM and the Holocaust by Edwin Black, which we've talked about on this program before. You can also listen to episode 118 or 103 of the podcast or some of my earlier interviews with Greg Nicoletto's of We the People Will Not Be Chipped, who talked about this uh, story before. Or you can look at the excellent documentary One Mainframe to Rule Them All, which talks about the IBM very chip agenda and touches on the very issues of IBM and their, well, shady past with eugenics and all of that. So there is certainly a lot to explore there in terms of just computers and the entire computer industry and how it really did help to mechanize the Holocaust and the atrocities that were committed by the Nazis in the name of their favored race eugenics ideology. But all of that aside for the moment, well, even if we take it for uh, for granted that the story that we now know of, of a young Bill Gates somehow or other managing to pull off uh, the the scoop of the century, the steal of the century against the one of the largest corporations on the planet, as is the story that is now repeated ad nauseum in all stories of Microsoft, even if we were to take that for, at face value, it, at the very least, is part of a uh, larger picture which proves the the oft-repeated adage, repeated by many people, even Steve Jobs himself, that Bill Gates was a uh, talentless bum who stole every idea that ever made him any money. And perhaps that's a criticism that stings particularly strongly for, for Bill Gates, who obviously has to realize that there is at least some truth to it, especially when we look at not only the MS-DOS and how that was basically bought outright from another company, but also the other great invention of the Microsoft founder, Windows, which itself was stolen from Apple, which itself was stolen from Xerox. 
two years ago at WWDC, we thought we'd poke a little bit of fun at the folks in Redmond who were still working on Longhorn. So we hung in the hallways of the conference those big banners that said, Redmond, start your photocopiers. It was all a joke, but they actually took it seriously. <laughs> But 10 years later, when we were designing the first Macintosh computer, it all came back to me. And we designed it all into the Mac. It was the first computer with beautiful typography. If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, the Mac would have never had multiple typefaces or proportionally spaced fonts. And since Windows just copied the Mac, it's likely that no personal computer would have them. You must have heard about the book that's come out. Walter Isaacson's written a book about uh, Steve Jobs with his uh, authorization. And he said a few things about you, which I want to run by you. I had some pretty tough words. He basically said that you were unimaginative, had never invented anything, and shamelessly ripped off other people's ideas. That's pretty tough stuff. Were you, what's your reaction to that? I made a mistake. I trusted. I believed family. Maybe a mafia family. <laughs> you turn your back and you get whacked. Our guys come back from Japan with this NEC and it's loaded with Microsoft programs. Your Microsoft programs. They're almost identical to ours. There may be some similarities, Steve. Similarities. Similarities. <laughs> Try theft. Steve, all cars have steering wheels, but no one tries to claim that the steering wheel was their invention. We have a contract, you and I. Well, you should read it more carefully. What is this? This is like doing business with, um, like a praying mantis, huh? You get seduced and then eaten alive afterwards. Get real, will you? You and I are both like guys that had this rich neighbor, Xerox, that left the door open all the time. And you go sneaking in to steal the TV set. Only when you get there, you realize that I got there first. I got the loot, Steve! And you're yelling? That's not fair! I wanted to try to steal it first. You're too late. We're better than you are. We have better stuff. You don't get it, Steve. That doesn't matter. Well, leaving aside for the moment the relatively trivial issue of how to become a billionaire, why don't we turn to the more interesting question of what to do with your billions once you've acquired them? And if you've fulfilled the first criteria of becoming a billionaire in that you are part of a well-established, well-connected, eugenics-driven pedigree, then, well, you'll already have a general idea of how you want to deploy your fortune, that is, in the pursuit of your maniacal quest to reduce the world's population and to ensure the perpetuity of your own family line and the destruction of those worthless scum below you, who you find to be, well, inconsequential vermin at best, and livestock to be slaughtered at worst. But if you don't exactly know how best to use your resources and your wealth to do that, don't worry. Even a eugenics-driven billionaire like Bill Gates had to undertake a careful, decades-long study of exactly how previous family fortunes have been deployed in this way in the past, a study that admittedly began decades before his fortune was even amassed. So some of our... Uh... Our Yahoo audience had some questions for you. What was the best advice you've ever gotten? Well, Warren Buffett has taught me a lot of things, but he got me thinking very early on that 
at some point I'd have the opportunity and responsibility to give the wealth back. And so uh, literally decades before the foundation got started, I was reading about philanthropists from the past. You know, what did Rockefeller or Carnegie or an amazing set of uh, people, largely Americans, what had they done and, and how did how it, how it worked? Ah, uh, yes. Well, how could a eugenicist-driven billionaire go wrong by emulating the granddaddy of all eugenicist billionaires, the Rockefeller family, and their philanthropic organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, and of course the Carnegies and the Fords and the other robber baron ty- industrial tycoons who set up their foundations to uh, to avoid taxes and to make sure that their fortunes would go to this, the furthering of their goal of exterminating the crowds and uh, turning up the soft kill until such time as we have absolutely absolutely astronomical rates of cancer and autism and all sorts of other things, which we are now being told on a daily basis is just a normal part of life. And uh, although it is absolutely skyrocketing across the board in all sorts of different ways, it's just nothing to be concerned about. And certainly don't look at what these wonderful philanthropic organizations are doing with their money, because it must be for the greater good of humanity, or so we are told on a daily basis. And for people who don't understand exactly how, for example, the Rockefeller family managed to turn themselves from one of the most demonized and reviled families on the face of the planet, one that was almost universally scorned for their absolute miserable behavior and the the absolute cold-heartedness of the John D. Rockefeller the first who managed to found the dynasty by creating his monopoly and using the standard oil iron fist to pound down any competition and managed to turn that around into almost universal admiration and adoration of this family and all of their wonderful work for humanity, one would be best served to watch a documentary like Psy War, which was actually uh, featured as a previous edition of this very podcast, And there you can find out about how Ivy Ledbetter Lee was brought in to really found the modern version of public relations by the Rockefeller family in the wake of the Ludlow Massacre, which was really the straw that threatened to break the camel's back of the public's tolerance for the Rockefeller family in general. And you can see how with the founding of the public relations industry, the Rockefellers were able to turn themselves and transform their family from the most reviled family in the U.S. to one of the most adored. Quite a feat. And similarly, one might marvel at how Bill Gates, who was once synonymous with Microsoft and synonymous with the evil for uh, many computer users for that, uh, that association, has somehow managed to turn that around into almost universal adoration. And adoration is not too heavy a word to use in this context when one starts to find the the plethora of ways in which his name is being transformed into almost an image of saintliness itself for his wonderful philanthropic activities. Now, like all newcomers to the billionaire business, you might have some ham-fisted and rather transparent attempts to transform your family name into something to be lauded and adored rather than reviled and rejected. So sometimes that can even border on the comical and uh, cartoonish, in fact, quite literally. So, for example, just last week we had uh, Now Bill Gates Becomes Comic Book Hero, uh, a story in the Hindustan Times writing about how Bill Gates is going to be the subject of a new comic book, uh, talking about how his philanthropic work has touched the lives of so many people. So quite literally being turned into a cartoon of sorts. Or you can find, for example, the rise of the good guy Gates meme. Uh, that has become popular online, and especially in places like Reddit and other uh, such places where people tend to uphold the usual status quo line on such issues and talking about what a wonderful guy he is uh, and and all of his wonderful efforts. Or you can see the uh, PR photos, for example, of him posing as if he was some type of saint that has been turned into this angelic image that supposedly represents how Bill Gates is this wonderful human being who just loves humanity oh so much. But there is a much, much darker side to all of this, because there is a way that anyone who is quite interested can see how he has quite literally managed to buy positive publicity for himself. And uh, and that again, that's not saying anything that uh, that doesn't deserve to be said, so let's document some of it. 
So, for example, Reuters covered the story back in December of 2008. NewsHour gets $3.5 million from Gates Foundation. And it talks about some of the ethical issues raised by a supposedly arm's-length media organization getting a grant from a foundation to cover that foundation's work in a specific area. So, reading from that article, quote, Here's an excerpt from the press release from the well-known weeknight news program. The NewsHour with Jim Lehrer announced that today that public broadcaster WETA, its co-producer, has received a three-year, $3.5 million grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to establish a dedicated NewsHour production unit to report on important global health issues. The Gates Foundation grant will enable the NewsHour to significantly expand its broadcast and online coverage of major global health issues affecting developing nations, such as malaria, HIV-AIDS, tuberculosis, measles, and neglected diseases. The NewsHour will also report on how global health challenges are being addressed by both scientific and public policy perspectives. Over the three-year life of the grant, NewsHour correspondents will travel around the world to produce approximately 40 to 50 documentary-style reports on major global health issues. These reports will air on the NewsHour's daily PBS broadcast and will be distributed via the NewsHour's digital platforms, along with original web-based global health content. The NewsHour will also launch a targeted outreach effort to put its reporting in front of policymakers, scientists, medical professionals, and others in the global health community. I spoke to NewsHour's communications chief, Rob Flynn. Question. Who decides what the news is? Answer. We have complete and final control. Question. Are you obliged to report on health issues that the foundation is interested in? Answer. In some regards, I guess you might say that there are not a heck of a lot of things that you could touch in global health these days that would not have some kind of Gates tentacle. But, he added, there is no obligation. End quote. And unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. You can turn to the Columbia Journalism Review, which wrote an article in October of 2010, how Ray Suarez really caught the global health bug that talks about how the NewsHour was funded to produce basically PR reports for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, how the global health reporter for the NewsHour became interested in global health reporting after receiving the money from that grant, and how the uh, the reports filed by the NewsHour, in fact, had to specifically avoid talking about the Gates Foundation while specifically covering the Gates Foundation's work. A very bizarre setup. And that report is interesting because it goes on to talk about some of the other ways in which the Gates Foundation was buying time from other media entities. And uh, definitely very interesting subject to look into. You can turn to The Guardian, which in September of 2010 had a press release, quote, The Guardian launches global development website with Gates Foundation. You can also turn to other sources. For example, the Seattle Times in February of 2011 had an expose media-related grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation talking about the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that the Gates Foundation had given to such fine and sterling representatives of media, uh, the arm's-length media, which is reporting on the Gates Foundation's work, like the BBC and many others. Or you can turn to an ABC News report from earlier this year talking about how wonderfully uh, Bill Gates is using the his fortune in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's work and the wonderful philanthropy they're doing around the world, which happens to note in small italics at the bottom of the article that ABC just happens to be involved with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is supplying funds for some of its coverage. Oh, just a slight conflict of interest in the way that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's work is being portrayed in the media that is being bought and paid for by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, wouldn't you say? But for all the incredulous people out in the audience who might not want to take my word for it, and absolutely, please don't, you might be asking yourselves, well, yes, okay, he may be funding some of the very media coverage which is then talking about his work, and yes, there may be some kind of conflict of interest there, but does that really mean that he isn't the real warm-hearted philanthropist that he portrays himself to be, maybe he really is this caring, wonderful human being who always had this plan of spreading the wealth if he were ever able to achieve it. Well, there's at least some cause for a bit of skepticism about that narrative, 
And of course, most of the uh, the sources that would run counter to that are found in sources that were really put together before the Gates Foundation came together and started buying up all the media coverage of Gates himself. But for example, turning to a very informative book about the gossip of the computer world called Accidental Empires by Robert Cringely, you can turn to chapter six of that book, which notes a very interesting anecdote, which at least should give us pause for thought about that narrative of Bill Gates being this wonderful humanitarian philanthropist with such a large heart that all he can think about and all he obsesses over is how best to dispose of his fortune in the name of humankind. Quote, William H. Gates III stood in the checkout line at an all-night convenience store near his home in the Laurelhurst section of Seattle. It was about midnight, and he was holding a carton of butter pecan ice cream. The line inched forward, and eventually it was his turn to pay. He put some money on the counter, along with the ice cream, and then began to search his pockets. I've got a 50 cents off coupon here somewhere, he said, giving up on his pants pockets and moving up to search the pockets of his plaid shirt. The clerk waited. The ice cream melted. The other customers, standing in line with their root beer slurpees and six packs of beer, fumed as Gates searched in vain for the coupon. Here, said the next shopper in line, throwing down two quarters. Gates took the money. Pay me back when you earn your first million, the 7-Eleven philanthropist called as Gates and his ice cream faded into the night. The shoppers just shook their heads. They all knew it was Bill Gates, who on that night in 1990 was approximately a $3 billion man. I figure there's some real information in this story of Bill Gates and the ice cream. He took the money. What kind of person is this? What kind of person wouldn't dig out his own 50 cents and pay for the ice cream? A person who didn't have the money? Bill Gates has the money. A starving person? Bill Gates has never starved. Some paranoid schizophrenics would have taken the money. Some wouldn't, too. But I've heard no claims that Bill Gates is mentally ill. And a kid might take the money. Some bright but poorly socialized kid under, say, the age of nine. Bingo. End quote. Well, of course, once again, be skeptical of that, as you will. Of course, that's only one tiny anecdote from a life, and I'm sure a tiny anecdote could be taken out of any one of our lives and used out of context to portray us in some way that we fundamentally are not. But it should at the very least give us a little pause for thought of whether this man, who would literally take 50 cents from a complete stranger at 7-Eleven while he had $3 billion in the bank, was truly concerned about spreading his wealth and fortune to the mass of humanity. But moving on to more substantive matters... Let's, let's take a look at the way that some of Bill Gates's money is being funneled into various alliances and activities that ultimately help with that depopulation that Bill Gates has been so absolutely obsessed with since such a young age, and how that is being transformed in, in, through the media into a wonderful, philanthropic, heartwarming strategy of delivering global health to the masses. And, of course, the oft-cited example is the infamous TED Talk, Innovating to Zero, where Bill Gates seems to make the little joke about how, well, one of these things will have to t go to zero in this equation, which, of course, can be interpreted as a type of joke about killing off billions upon billions of people. Now, we put out a lot of carbon dioxide every year, uh, over 26 billion tons. Uh, for each American, it's about 20 tons. Uh, for people in poor countries, it's less than one ton. It's an average of about five tons for everyone on the planet. And somehow we have to make changes that will bring that down to zero. It's been constantly going up. It's only various economic changes that have even flattened it at all. So we have to go from rapidly rising to falling and falling all the way to zero. This equation has four factors, a little bit of multiplication. So you've got to thing on the left, CO2, that you want to get to zero, and that's going to be based on the number of people, the services each person's using on average, the energy on average for each service, and the CO2 being put out uh, per unit of energy. So let's look at each one of these and see how we can get this down to zero. Uh, probably one of these numbers is going to have to get pretty near to zero. Uh, that's back from high school algebra, but let's, let's take a look. 
all right, well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was just a, a silly mathematical type of joke and had nothing really to do with laughing at the prospect of billions of people dying. And let's give him the benefit of the doubt later on in that TED Talk where he talks about vaccines. If they do a really good job, they can reduce the world's population 10 to 15%. Because maybe what he's talking about is what he's said in other contexts, that the more likely that a child is to survive childhood and survive into adulthood, the less children that people will ultimately have. Thus, you can actually reduce the population of the world by ensuring the health of the young. And uh, perhaps that was the the real true spirit of what he was saying there about vaccines reducing population. Let's try to look for any more substantive information about what his funds are actually being used for and whether or not it does paint the picture of someone who is obsessed with making sure that there are less of those pesky brown people to populate the earth as opposed to the agenda that is portrayed in the mainstream media. Well, for example, you can look at some of the interesting grants that his foundation has funded in the past. Uh, For example, naturalnews.com, February 1st, 2012. Bill Gates funds technology to destroy your sperm. Quote, mass vaccination is apparently not the only depopulation strategy being employed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as new research funded by the organization has developed a way to deliberately destroy sperm using ultrasound technology. BBC News reports that the Gates Foundation, by the way, BBC News is one of the organizations that receives money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Returning to the article, BBC News reports that the Gates Foundation awarded a grant to researchers from the University of North Carolina to develop this new method of contraception. End quote. Or, for example, how about the Gavi Alliance, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, which was admittedly really made possible through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's generous grants. And when you look into that, I hope you'll come across a website called Whale.2, which has some very interesting information about Gavi and how it ties into the vaccine slash depopulation agenda. And, uh, and in that article, you'll be able to find out about how the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation really did make Gavi possible. Uh, quote, originally funded by Microsoft billionaire Bill Gates through his Seattle-based Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Gavi's partnership of international governments and vaccine manufacturers salvaged lagging sales through an overhauled world vaccination campaign that placed Gavi, headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland, at the center of the reorganized alliance. In 1999, with Gavi's international partnership and Bill Gates' billions on the way to rescue the industry, the CDC hired the IOM's Immunizations and Safety Review Committee to examine multiple vaccine safety challenges, end quote. And I suggest you go and read into the millions upon millions that the Gates uh, pumped into Gavi to make it possible and to realize its dream of vaccinating the entire world's population. And, uh, and again, there should be some pause for thought about what that really involves and what kind of companies are really making this possible and how they make it possible. So once again, I would direct you to another Whale.2 article, this one by Anthony Gucciardi, originally appeared in the website Natural Society in November of 2011. UN Bill Gates Foundation push deadly HPV shots on poor nations under Gavi Alliance. And this goes on to talk about the deadly HPV shots, the Merck uh, vaccine called Gardasil, which we've talked about in previous editions of this podcast and with previous guests, and how it was really made possible through this Bill Gates-funded Gavi alliance. Quote, Merck is offering Gavi a deep discount on Gardasil, down to $5 per vaccine from $15 per three-dose course. While this may seem thoughtful, as Gavi appears to make zero profit from their generous act of dishing out the deadly Gardasil vaccine on poor nations, Merck stands to make a substantial profit. Thanks to a Gavi co-financing policy, recipient countries are required to contribute toward the cost of the vaccines. This guarantees that not only Merck, but Gavi as well, will receive considerable amounts of cash from the nine unknown countries in which the HPV shots are being administered. Furthermore, the UN World Bank is actually issuing bonds to fund the HPV shot campaign. Again, you can go on and read in great detail more of the specifics in that article. And there's a lot of other great work that's been done besides 
of real investigative journalism trying to uncover the tangled webs that are woven by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in this Gavi alliance, trying to put the pieces of these various uh, parts of the puzzle together in a way that shows a very different image than that portrayed in the corporate-controlled, bought-and-paid-for media that is admittedly and on the record funded by the very Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that are making these vaccinations possible. So what is the mainstream media take on this? Uh, these very issues of depopulation and the strategies that foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are using to depopulate the earth? How do they cover it in their thoughtful coverage? Well, let's take, for example, the infamous ABC News, which... Once again, let's be reminded, works in collaboration with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the ABC News take on this depopulation agenda. The price of admission is a billion dollars and a philanthropic heart, and that meets the pricey requirements recently held in a secret meeting, a private meeting in New York City. ABC's John Berman has the scoop on who was there and what was going on. Behind closed doors on this New York campus, a secret gathering of some of the world's most powerful people. Gates, Buffett, Bloomberg, Winfrey. It was like, well, it was like the Super Friends. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes. Together with others at the meeting, including George Soros, Ted Turner, David Rockefeller, they're worth more than $125 billion. To have been in the room and, and see this meeting of the minds really would have been a fascinating thing. That much money, that much power around one table, it begs the question, what were they doing? What were they scheming? Total world domination? This group, together for six hours, was talking about charity, education, emergency relief, global health. All my friends are philanthropic. Well, they probably wouldn't be my friends. An official at the Gates Foundation told ABCNews.com the overwhelming reason for the meeting was need. That was the issue that galvanized everyone to participate. Together, they've given away $70 billion since 1996. And with the sagging economy, their help could be just what struggling charities need. Charities are hurting, and somebody has to speak for all these charities. And if they want philanthropy to be robust in the future in the United States, these are the people where you really want to be talking about it. The new Superman and Wonder Woman, the super rich friends, not fighting bad guys, but fighting for good nonetheless. For Good Morning America, John Berman, ABC News, New York. Yes, apparently one of the things they discussed was what each of them knows about what really works and what doesn't work so they can concentrate their resources. Oh, yes. Oh, hard-hitting investigative journalism there. Absolutely nothing cartoonish about that coverage of a very, very serious issue. And I'm sure everyone who watched that report came away with a much better sense of what these people are really aiming at and what these billionaires are talking about behind closed doors. And we can all rest assured that these super friends will continue to watch over us with their loving kindness. And, uh, well, why stop there? Why not take a look at how the mainstream media has handled another very sensitive topic when it comes to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, specifically their very profound interest in genetically modified organisms and genetically modified foods. Uh, GMOs were at an earlier stage, but over time, the benefits will be substantial, and so each country will, will make a choice. When they first came out, the benefits were quite modest. They weren't things that would save lots of people from uh, starvation. That's much more in the future. And there are lots of seeds, non-GMO seeds, uh, that are also yet, yet to be uh, fully created. Right. And there's also the, the economic concern that um, big companies like Monsanto, they have the patents not only on the seeds but the, the weed killer. And so farmers both in America and, and India then have to buy both in order to survive. It's very expensive. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the, in these poor countries, the uh, intellectual property uh, is given to nonprofits. And so that's the seeds we're working on for the poor countries. There's absolutely no payments, no royalties of any kind. Mm. Uh, it's just like in medicines, we're able to get uh, medicines where there's no profit made when they're sold to the poorest countries. 
and we do the same in agriculture. We go to the big companies who don't expect to make profits from the poorest billion and say, uh, will you help us? And so they, uh, they donate it. You have to adapt the seeds anyway. The agricultural soil conditions, weather conditions are quite different in Africa, and that's partly why the Green Revolution that helped Asia so much passed Africa by was because it requires extra special work. And, and we, we, this is all about helping the, the poorest, so it's ironic if somebody takes an argument somehow blocks uh, helping them when, when the technology uh, is not subject to any payment. Well, I don't know about you, but that seems fair enough to me. Some hard questions that were answered in a very clear and straightforward way that seem to portray the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as a foundation that takes these concerns very seriously and offers the most possible autonomy to these countries that are being subjected to these genetically modified monstrosities, that they must develop their own systems for looking at and studying the effects and the potential drawbacks of each organism very carefully, and then deciding on their own whether or not to go ahead with it. It. And one wonders if that's really the way that things do operate when Bill and Melinda Gates money is involved. And, well, we can turn to some specific examples of the way that that is demonstrably not true. Uh, for example, we can look at the story from 2011, Genetically Modified Mosquitoes Unleashed, uh, from naturalsociety.com, quote, this past Sunday, researchers announced initial success regarding the environmental release of genetically modified mosquitoes, which are designed to kill their own offspring before they reach adulthood. The first mosquito release took place in the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean in 2009. On Sunday, October 27th, the release was discussed in a scientific paper by the Journal of Nature Biotechnology with a report concluding the release's success. Oxitec, the British company responsible for the creation of the genetically modified mosquitoes, created this internally manipulated insect to help control agricultural pests and reduce insect-borne diseases like dengue fever and malaria. They received about $24 million from investors for their mosquito science project. It wouldn't be surprising if the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation contributed to Oxitec's goal as the foundation funded genetically modified mosquitoes back in 2010. In fact, the actions taken by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been contributing to genetic modification for years, end quote. Or we can turn to a very insightful and well-researched article on the centerforfoodsafety.org from April of 2011 talking about the very interesting connections between the Gates Foundation, Monsanto, and the Doomsday Seed Vault in Svalbard, and we might also, you know, give a little bit of thought as to why these biotech companies are investing all of this money in backing up basically the biosphere of the earth in this Svalbard doomsday seed vault while they continue to push these genetically modified monstrosities on the poorest people in the world as the Bill and Melinda Gates is foundation is very much dedicated to doing with their pushing of biotech in the third world. Let's not stop there. Why don't we take a closer look at the very interesting relationship between the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, this philanthropic foundation that's only dedicated to spending the Gates fortune in ways that are for the benefit of all humanity, and the investments that that foundation has in Monsanto. Is the world's largest private philanthropy causing harm with the same money it uses to do good? That's the question hanging over the charity of Microsoft founder Bill Gates and his wife Melinda today. The Los Angeles Times has revealed the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has made millions of dollars each year from companies blamed for many of the same social and health problems the foundation seeks to address. The Gates Foundation has an endowment of more than $31 billion. The investment mogul Warren Buffett has pledged an additional $30 billion delivered in incremental sums. Since its inception six years ago, the foundation has committed more than $11 billion to programs around the world. This includes major grants for vaccine and immunization programs, HIV and AIDS research, and public education here in the United States. But the L.A. Times investigation reveals the Gates Foundation's humanitarian concerns are not reflected in how it invests its money. In the Niger Delta, where the foundation funds programs to fight polio and measles, the foundation's also invested more than $400 million in companies like Royal Dutch Shell, ExxonMobil and Chevron. These oil firms have been responsible for much of the pollution many blame for respiratory problems and other afflictions among the local population. 
The Gates Foundation also has investments in 69 of the worst polluting companies in the U.S. and Canada, including Dow Chemical. It holds stakes in drug companies whose drugs cost far beyond what most AIDS patients around the world can afford. Other companies in the foundation's portfolio have been accused of transgressions, including forcing thousands of people to lose their homes, supporting child labor, defrauding and neglecting patients in need of medical care. Overall, the L.A. Times says nearly nine billion dollars in Gates Foundation money is tied up in companies whose practices run counter to the foundation's charitable goals and social mission. And that number may be understated. The Gates Foundation has not provided details on more than $4 billion in investments, it says, are loans. The Gates Foundation refused to talk to the L.A. Times about specific investments and whether it planned to change its practices. We also contacted the Gates Foundation for comment, but we didn't get a response. And the charity of Microsoft founder Bill Gates and his wife Melinda is under criticism following the disclosure. It substantially increased its holdings in the agribusiness giant Monsanto to over $23 million. Critics say the investment in Monsanto contradicts the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's stated commitment to helping farmers and sustainable development in Africa. In 2007, the Gates Foundation said it would review its holdings after a lengthy expose in the Los Angeles Times revealed it had invested nearly $9 billion billion dollars in companies whose practices run counter to the foundation's charitable goals. Well, it's good to know that some foundation-funded controlled alternative media is at least willing to question the saintly godliness of the Gates Foundation and to actually hold their feet to the fire a little bit in terms of investigative reporting. And there is more to that story. It continues to unfold as Monsanto, uh, as the Gates Foundation continues to buy more stock and more control in Monsanto. And those two uh, organizations, bodies continue to merge in this biotech promoted future that was very much the subject of the most recent Gates annual letter from his foundation talking about how the world is going to be fed by GM Technologies in exact contrast to the, well, a growing scientific consensus, if one wants to bring out that uh, that well-used phrase, that in fact GM Technology is not going to help uh, actually increase yields. And even the U- Cons- Union of Concerned Scientists has come out in recent years with an article basically debunking that myth that uh, GM crops are somehow going to magically feed the poor. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The GM crops are, in fact, not going to uh, increase yields. But at any rate, that's the, uh, the the business plan for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is now invested in the very companies that serve to stand to make a profit if these, these types of crops are generally well accepted. And once again, there are very, very precious few media organizations that are willing to or able to look into those connections. Because as we've looked at today, so many of those uh, media organizations are funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation itself. Well, again, there's so much to be said about Bill Gates and his background and how he is using his fortune and much, much, much more research out there besides. But I hope that the rather voluminous documentation list for today's episode of the podcast will uh, be an adequate starting point for your own research into this matter, which I suggest you take up on your own time as you begin to consider how it is possible that philanthropic organizations truly can direct our society in a certain direction for the benefit of certain families at the expense of the vast majority of us through ways that appear to be altruistic, loving, and kind, but are anything besides. Once again, I don't suggest that you take my word for it. I suggest that you go and start watching some of these documentaries and uh, some of the listening to some of the speeches that Bill Gates is giving in recent years about his philanthropic efforts and keeping in mind the source of the information that you're looking at and who it's funded by, because that's uh, often a good clue as to what kind of slant it's going to have. And as I say, there's there's much, much more to be said about this. But at any rate, today we have been looking at how to become a billionaire and what to do with it. Tongue in cheek, of course, investigating the ways that these eugenics obsessed, well-connected elite tend to get into these positions where they get to use their family fortune to direct society in the very ways that they've been secretly lusting after for decades, admittedly. And on that note, we will leave it there with you beginning your own research into this matter. And I am James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. The Bill Gates song. I've been a geek forever. 
And I wrote the very first DOS. I put my software and IBM together. I got profit and they got the loss. I write the code that makes the whole world run. I'm getting royalties from everyone. Sometimes it's garbage, but the press is snowed. You buy the box, I'll sell the code. Every software company is doing Microsoft's R&D. You can't keep a good idea down these days. Even Windows is a hack. We're kind of based loosely on the Mac. So it's big, so it's slow. You got nowhere to go. I'm not doing this for praise. I write the code that fits the world today. Big mediocrity in every way. We've entered planet domination mode. You'll have no choice, you'll buy my code. 